Good morning. What a privilege it is to be able to open up the Word with you and to be able to share what God has asked us to share, what God has revealed to us in His Word. I'm so ever thankful that He has never left us and He's never left us without a manual. And we have this manual in front of us. And uh, so it's a joy to open it with you. I'll apologise right up the front. If you, have a, um, if you have a roast on and it's cooking, then it's probably going to burn. I tried to uh, fit this all into as, as quick as I could, but I've just got so much to say. The Word's got so much to say that, uh, that uh, just bear with me. We're doing a kind of Bible study today, so if at times, just listen to where I'm going. Um, and if you can turn there quick enough, then praise God. But if you'd like to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, before we move on, I have to recap where we're up to in in this book. Remember, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And from chapter 12, we've had chapter 12, the context now is so very important to where we are in this book. You see, last time I spoke to to you from the pulpit, you might remember that we finished by looking at the seventh trumpet back in chapter 11, particularly verse 15. Just flick back there. The seventh trumpet, when it sounded, verse 15 says, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We finished last time with the knowledge that there is going to be joy in heaven at the announcement of the fact that Christ has defeated Satan and established his kingdom, took the kingdom from Satan, the kingdom of the world, and he, and he will reign forever and ever. And that's where we finished last time. The war between Satan and our Lord at chapter 11, verse 15, is over. And you'll have to catch up to that from our website because I haven't got time to go back and, and reiterate that. But even though chapter 11, verse 15, announces this victory, the fact is, the consequences of that seventh trumpet, as it sounds, aren't described until chapter 15. Take a quick look at chapter 15, verse 1 with me. So after the seventh trumpet, chapter 15, verse 1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvellous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. After the seventh trumpet where it is announced that God is the victor and he will reign forever and ever, the seventh trumpet sets off a a lot of consequences, one of them being these seven plagues. You see, the seventh trumpet is going to sound near the end of the tribulation and that will launch seven brief, but let me tell you, final bowl judgments. And that's what it says. These are the last because in them the wrath of God is then finished. 
And then the Lord, which we looked at last time just quickly, the Lord will return in power and glory in chapter 19. So why am I telling you this? Why have I taken you to chapter 15? Why have I taken you to a, at least have a look at the seven bold judgments? Because it's imperative that we know the context of the intervening chapters, 12, 13 and 14. If we don't know the context of those three chapters, we're not going to understand the rest of Revelation. In fact, we may not even understand the whole book of Revelation. It's imperative to understand it, to the understanding of this, this prophecy that we know where 12, 13 and 14 fit in. Over, and I looked this morning, I couldn't believe it, two, two years ago, three years ago we started this. <laughs> three years ago, we've been through chapters 6 to 11 and we've described and we've been together and the, the, the events of the tribulation has been described up to the seventh trumpet. We had the revelation of the seven seals. We've gone through the seven trumpets. We've seen uh, in chapter 5 the joy in heaven. We're going to see the seven bowls in chapter 17 when the wrath of God will be finished. And the reason I've taken you there is so what happens in chapters 12 to 14? How do they fit into the prophetic writing of the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, interestingly, chapters 12 to 14 actually describe the same period that chapters 6 to 11 do. But this time, not from God's perspective, but from Satan's perspective. What happens in chapters 12 to 14 is that we go all the way back to Satan's original rebellion. And that's what we'll start looking at today. And then that goes right through to the introduction of the Antichrist. And it goes into the introduction of the false prophet in, chapters thir in chapter 13. Then in chapter 14, we're going to see a brief overview of the last half of the tribulation from Satan's point of view. And then the chronological narrative of the tribulation will commence again in chapter 15 with the seven bowl judgments. And so it's important that we understand that chapters 12 to 14 are an interlude between the seventh and the first bowl judgment. Only an interlude in John's writing, not in a interlude of time. It's like uh, God decided to give John uh, some extracurricular writing, going back right back to the to the fall of Satan, right through to 14, which will be a condensed version of the tribulation from point, uh, Satan's point of view. You know. The reality is that this is a, a, a really, this tribulation has been like none before and, and none will ever be. Just listen to Matthew 24 20, and verse 21. This is Jesus describing this time. Verse 21 of Matthew 24 says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world unto now, nor ever will. 
Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Why is the tribulation so devastating? And the answer is because not only is God pouring out and going to pour out his maximum wrath upon the world, upon the ungodly, Satan is going to be pouring out his maximum fury upon the godly. And so you've got, the, you've got this war going on. God is pouring it out on the ungodly. Satan is pouring it out on Israel and the godly. And, the, and, the godly. and ultimately the tribulation is the coming together of the, all the worst possible and imaginable and unimaginable events, but from God's side and Satan's side. And so by the time we get through 12, 13 and 14, we'll have a full picture of what will go on in the last half of the tribulation from Satan's side. This morning I only plan to go through the first six verses of chapter 12 because it's also important that we're clear on the context of these verses. The clarity is needed because there are three subjects here in Revelation 12, 1-6 that need to be identified foremost and first before we go on. We'll have two signs that John sees and before we can go on we need to understand what these signs are. So let's pray and then we'll dive into Revelation chapter 12. Father, Our desire this morning is to glorify your name. As we read the account of what is yet to come and digest the word that you have given us here, Father, we are so privileged to be able to see and to understand about the days that are at hand and the events that are yet to come. Lord, help us through your word to be prepared in our hearts, particularly looking for and and being uh, anticipating for your second coming. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, without whom all this would not be possible. We stand in awe of who you are, my God, and we pray that this morning, as we study your word, that together we would be challenged and changed, particularly where we need it. Amen. Chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labour and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,200 years. And 60 days. 
So here in these verses, we have three figures. We have an unnamed woman, we have a creature described as a great red dragon, and we have an unnamed male child. And as I said before, it's vitally important to understand who these three figures represent. The first we see is a woman. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon at her feet and her head and crown of 12 stars. Now, I want to take a little time here to explain what John is seeing here. What is John seeing? He's seeing signs. He's seeing semion. That's what he's seeing. As he looks up, he's seeing signs. A great sign appeared in heaven, and then later another sign appeared in heaven. The word semion, and when you see that in prophetic language and prophetic literature, which the book of Revelation is, what a person is, sim- is seeing is symbolic of a reality. So when John sees a woman, when John sees the dragon appearing in heaven, this is not to illustrate a literal woman or a literal dragon, but is symbolic of some other reality that these things are representing. So the first question is, who or what is the reality of the first sign that John sees? What's the reality of the semion that John sees? A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child. And she cried out, being in labour and in pain, and gave birth, or to give birth. Now I'm going to tell you without any delay that this sign, this semion of a woman, is the nation Israel. How do I know that? Because the rest of the context that we read earlier, if you read it, it would have made it so clear to you that this is Israel. We'll see that as we go through. Unfortunately, some people are very quick to say that this is mother, the Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the official uh, position of the Roman Catholic Church, that that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you've done or heard of, of Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy thought that this woman was her. I don't know if you've got to name Mary, you've got to be, be careful, but no, sorry Mary. But the fact is, it can't be either Mary's. Because look at verse 6. It says, The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of 1260 days. That never happened to Mary or Mary. And it never will happen to Mary or Mary. This actually happens to Israel in the middle of the tribulation. We're going to have to do a little Bible study. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 15. Now this is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking about this time. (coughs) And he says to the people in verse 15 of Matthew 24... Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. 
Now, we can't understand that. The reader can who is reading that because the fact is they were mostly Jews and they knew the scriptures. I'm going to read Daniel 9.27 for you. Now, you can turn there if you like. It's only one verse, but this is what... This is how it it was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. So Daniel the prophet said, and he's talking about the beast, the Antichrist, he will make firm a covenant with the many for one week. Now, we're not going to go through Daniel, but one week is seven years. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, for you mathematicians, that's three and a half years, 1260 days, In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain and offering on the wing of abomination which will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. (coughs) The Antichrist sets himself up in the temple in the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years Sorry, Daniel calls him the abomination of desolation. And he, according to Daniel, he will, uh, it is poured out on the one who makes desolate, complete destruction. So Daniel knows and was prophesied that he will be destroyed. (coughs) So when we come to Matthew, we have Jesus quoting Daniel. And he wants to understand the people or tell the people that what Daniel said is going to happen. And so therefore, when he, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and now you can understand. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must, must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world unto now, nor ever will. In the middle of the tribulation... The abomination of desolation, the Antichrist sets himself up as God in the temple, stops all the sacrifices that the, that the Jews had been granted as part of the, the peace plan. And God says, or Jesus says, that you must flee to the mountains. Israel's flight into the wilderness is an exodus into a place not of hardship, not of suffering, but of safety and divine protection. We'll see later on, and we're not going to look at it today, but they'll be lifted up on wings of eagles and taken to the wilderness to be protected by God for 1260 days. I'm assuming, and that's an assumption, I don't do that a lot, that he will feed them like he did those in the wilderness of of the Exodus through manna and through many other ways. And so the, the woman is to flee to a, to a place for 1260 days, for three and a half years, for 42 months, being, as Jesus described, the end of the great tribulation. Three and a half years being the end, the last of the, to that great tribulation period. God is going to keep Israel safe during this 
horrible time of the last three and a half years. Later on, not today, we're going to see that Satan tries to attack this fleeing nation. We'll see that in the next part of the next time we're together. But we'll have to wait and see that. So this woman is Israel. About the sun and the moon and, the, and, and those things pointing to Israel, I really don't know. There's a lot of speculation. You can go to any particular scholar and they'll tell you whatever they think. We don't really know. If you want my thoughts, my thoughts are it speaks of the glory and the brilliance of a redeemed Israel. The moon under Israel's feet or her feet refers to Israel's I believe exaltation, especially in the millennial kingdom. Israel will be lifted up. Israel will be there and reigning. It'll be their kingdom. We, as Christians, will be there. But we'll be helping the Lord to rule. All I can be sure of is the crown of 12 stars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the only thing I can tell you for certain. But the context is quite clear that this woman, the sign that John is seeing is the nation Israel. And even more clearly is the fact that verse 2 describes her as about to deliver a child. And verse 5 identifies that child, so we don't even have to speculate there. Look at verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who's that throughout Scripture? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Psalm 2, a messianic psalm, speaks of this very thing. Verse 6 of Psalm 2 says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And verse 9 says, He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, but we, we could look at Revelation 2.27, uses exact same words about Christ. We could look at chapter 19, verse 15, and say the same of Christ. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And I want you to understand that word rule is the word poimeno, which is, means to shepherd. Sometimes we see rule and we think of this harshness you know this yes god will be harsh on sin on and his wrath will come down but the idea is to shepherd he will be shepherding us you shall shepherd them with a rod of iron you see it was through israel through the the nation israel that jesus christ was birthed it was through Israel that Jesus Christ came into this world. Israel gave birth to the Messiah. And if you hadn't thought about it before, the Lord Jesus Christ is a Jew. He's not blonde with blue eyes, as you see sometimes in pictures. He is a swarthy Jew. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 9.5, To them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Paul says that in Romans 9.5. It was Israel that, humanly speaking, brought forth the Christ. And that's why Jesus told the woman at the well, if you remember, salvation is from the Jews. And it comes to us by that same root. Salvation that we have is from the Jews and we have been grafted in. Let me say praise God to that. 
So Israel gave birth to Christ. And then verse 5 continues, And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The sign was not to explain his life, his death. He went straight from his birth to his resurrection. He was born, and then the scriptures say, and her child was caught up to God. There's nothing in between, but that's all right. This is not, this is not what this is about. This is our Lord's ascension, our Lord's resurrection, or ascension, sorry. It's not about his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. It's not about that. It's about the fact that he was born and then he was caught up after all those other things, after we've looked at the communion table, caught up to God and to his throne. And to me, the interesting part is why John saw it that way. I can only come to one conclusion, and that is that it shows that our Lord finally escaped Satan trying to devour him. See, wait, Satan was trying to devour him. He was born, but he went up to God. The imagery that we have in verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6, for that matter, leads us to the conclusion that this woman represents Israel, the male child of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Messiah. We've got one other character in this story. Verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. So what reality, because it is a sign, it actually says there, another sign, another semion, what realities does this sign or this dragon point to? What's the reality of this dragon? Take a quick glance ahead at verse 9, and you'll know the answer. I didn't have to, to show you. It just says there in verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Clearly, the Bible reveals the answer to the dragon's identity is, the, is in fact, Satan. And what else do we see in verse 3 that is a sign pointing to reality? That sign is the fact that he has seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. What then is the reality of these seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns? Well, I'm not going to go through it with you at this stage. You're going to have to come back at chapter 17, because that's where it is really fully explained. But I want to help you with your, to whet your curiosity. Let's go to chapter 17, verse 9. I'm not going to explain it in great detail, but it is explained in these verses in chapter 17. This chapter is talking about the beast, the Antichrist. It's also talking about a, a, another sign of a woman. Now, I want you to to understand that this woman is not the woman we've been talking about. It is another sign of another woman. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 17. But 17 verse 9 says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Not our woman, but another woman, the harlot. But we'll get to that. 
Verse 10, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. When we get there, we'll go into more detail, but just for now, let me be sufficient to say that the seven heads represent seven kingdoms. Seven kingdoms of the world that Satan rules over all of them. This actually comes again from the book of Daniel. We don't have time to go back to Daniel, but it's Daniel chapter 7, so maybe you'd like to just note that and one day go back there. But the book of Daniel states that there will be seven world empires that are going to rule the eastern world in history. At the time of John writing Revelation, which is in the 90s, you'll see that five have fallen, five worldly kingdoms have fallen. There is one now, when John was writing, and the other has not yet come when John was writing. And when he comes, that last one must remain just a little while. And then he says for an hour, just to clarify it's a little time if we went to the book of Daniel we'd see that the first kingdom was the Assyrian kingdom the Assyrian empire then we had the Egyptian empire after the Egyptians came the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians and the Greek empire and they have all fallen they're the five that have fallen Daniel will will show us that or could show us that The one that is at the time of the writing of Revelation is the Roman Empire. The one to come is the Antichrist. And as I said, I praise God that he says when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Seven years to be exact, I can put a little bit of time on it. You see, for the first three and a half years after the rapture of the church, after we're raptured out, after we've gone, after we're, we're, we're with our, our, our husband and the bride uh, being the church is with our Lord, for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, Antichrist is going to be the hero of the world. He's going to let the Israelites and the Jews do what they want, build a temple and, and reorder sacrifices. In the middle of that seven years, The Antichrist is going to set himself up as an abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel and all hell is going to break loose. And I don't mean that as a pun. I mean all hell will break loose. We read that earlier in Matthew 24. The Antichrist sets himself up as a god. There will be more detail to come. We're going to see a lot more detail of that as we go through Revelation. But what we need to understand here is that Satan is represented in verse 3 as dominating world rulers. A great dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And you know, that domination that the Satan has, it remains now. As we sit here in this room, the fact is 
until the blowing of that seventh trumpet, Satan rules this world. He is the prince of the air. He is dominating world powers. I'm not one that says and looks for Satan behind every bush. I realize that we have a sin nature and therefore sin comes through. We, We do it. But Satan is very real, very alive, very much in control of world nations. And only when the seventh trumpet is blown will the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our Lord. And then the scriptures do a strange thing. They take us back. They take us back to Satan's fall. Verse 4 says, And his tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and threw them to the earth. Taking us right back to the fall of Satan. You see, Satan was a guardian cherub named Lucifer. Lucifer means light giver, light bearer. And Lucifer was a guardian cherub. But he decided to rebel against God. We have two primary passages. We're not going to go to them, but the first one is Isaiah 14, verse 12. You might know them as the five I wills, where Satan, or Lucifer at the time, says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the highest. And then Ezekiel 28, verse 12 and onward, records the power of Lucifer and the fall of Satan. You see, Lucifer was expelled from heaven because of pride filling his heart. His desire was to position himself above every angelic creature and to be considered equal with God himself. That was his desire. And God said no. And he was thrown out of heaven. The Bible says in Revelation 12, in verse 4, his tail swept away a third of the stars. Look at verse 9 also in Revelation 12. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. A third of the angels rebelled with Lucifer when he sinned against God. And I, I think that's, um, it's wonderful to know that there are two-thirds who are good angels. <laughs> and greater is he who is in me than he is in the world. Amen? And then we have what I believe is the crux of these verses. The, 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 to me, the whole idea, the whole compliment, the big idea... And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gives birth, he might devour the child. And so we know now that that's Satan standing before Israel waiting for the Messiah so that he could devour the Messiah. Why would he want to devour the Messiah? So he could thwart God's plan of redemption. Without the Messiah, there is no plan of redemption, is there? We wouldn't be where we are. As Paul says, we would be a people most pitied. And so that was Satan's thought right from the beginning. In fact, I can take you to the Garden of Eden. I can take you to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Historically, we have seen since the Garden of Eden that Satan wants to destroy Israel. 
destroy the messianic line. In Genesis 3.15, God pronounces his judgment upon Adam and Satan. Talking to Satan, God said this, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, that is the seed, as we know to be Jesus Christ, he will, sorry, uh, Satan, he will bruise you on the head. So Jesus Christ will bruise or hurt Satan on the head. And he says, but you're only going to bruise the seed, Jesus Christ, on the heel. So right from Genesis 3.15, the first reference of the Messiah, Satan has been crouched in front of the woman trying to destroy the child before he himself is destroyed. He knew back then that he was going to be annihilated. He was going to be destroyed. He was going to be, as we know later and we'll get to, in the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. How has Satan done this? Well, we could look through all of Scripture. But the first thing he tried to do was destroy the line of the Messiah. And then he tried to destroy Jesus himself. We've seen it all through human history, throughout all the the centuries since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been operating through the world system, making every effort to inflict pain on Israel and death on the Messiah. That's been his, his, his agenda. Stop and think about it. What other nation around the world has so much hatred and animosity directed toward it other than Israel? And he's still acting upon it. Satan is still doing it today, even though Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I want to give you some little hints, just, just a few, to show where Satan's effort began and how it's still going. To get a little hint of Satan's effort, listen to 1 John 3.12. Just listen. Verse 12 of 1 John chapter 3, it says, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. You know, we, we can skip over that, but when Cain killed his brother Abel, he was of the evil one. Satan was planning right at that stage through Cain, Cain doing Satan's bidding to kill Abel. Even at that early stage, he was attempting to rid himself of Israel. From the beginning, Satan was at war with Israel and her Messiah, and this war has been going on ever since. Think about Genesis chapter 6. Satan sends his demons to cohabit with women to destroy mankind. God sent a flood to clean it up. Only eight people survived. Satan went awfully close to destroying the Messiah's line even then. What about Exodus chapter 1? We all know the story of Moses, how he was saved as a baby. But why did the killing of baby male Israelites happen? Why did Moses have to be secluded away? Because Pharaoh was trying to wipe out the Israelites by murdering all the baby boys. Whose plan do you think that was? What about Saul trying to kill David? If he succeeded, the Messianic line would have finished. I love the book of Esther. In that, Haman 
tried to cause genocide against the Jewish people. He wanted to wipe all the Jewish people out. And if you read the book of Esther, you see how God's hand with, with Esther and Mordecai, uh, Haman was hung on his own gallows. But whose plan was Haman's plan? But you know, one of the most amazing accounts we came across in our Bible study when we were going through 1 Kings, the amazing accounts of how Satan nearly wiped out the Messianic line. The Messianic line got down to one little baby. Just one baby between Messiah and no Messiah. I'll just read 2 Chronicles 22, just a couple of verses Chapter, uh, chapter 22 of Second Chronicles, verse 10. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, Ahaziah was the king at the time, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. So Athaliah, she got up when Ahaziah died and killed all the babies, killed all the offspring. Verse 11 says, But Jehoshabeth, the king's daughter took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, um, hid him from Athaliah so that she would not put him to death. And he was hidden with them in the house of God six years while Athaliah reigned over Israel. One little baby, Joash. And if Athaliah had succeeded, the Messiah's line would have disappeared. This is not coincidence. This is not fate. This is Satan's plan to destroy the Messiah's line. God allowed one thread on which all messianic hopes to live. One thread through the baby Josh. You see, Satan's desire was to kill the child before he was even born. But he didn't succeed in that. The child was born. We know that. So Satan's next plan is to kill the child. How did he do this? Well, the first time was with Herod, wasn't it? What did Herod do? When he found out that the king of the Jews had been born, he, he killed every baby child, every baby boy under two years of age. But God had foiled that plan by moving Jesus and his family to Egypt until Herod died. Even when Jesus began his ministry, you might remember in Luke 4.28, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard Jesus speaking, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. They're trying to kill him. Satan couldn't kill the Messiah. I believe even when Satan was tempted in the, uh, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4, Satan said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Trying to see if he would at least try to commit suicide. I'm sure Satan's hope was that Jesus would destroy himself. He tried everything to devour that child, but he couldn't do it. But you know, the reality is that child did end up dying, didn't he? As Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
on the cross. We've looked at that this morning. And I'm sure Satan had his thoughts of victory for those three days that Jesus was in the tomb. I can imagine him dancing around saying, I've finally done it. i finally destroyed the Messiah. Yes, the child did die. But Acts tell us he died under the predetermined will of God. He died for our sins and he rose again and ascended to the Father. At, at the ascension, Satan was a defeated foe. But even today, this defeated foe is still trying to work to prevent the plan of God. He is the prince of this world until, those seventh, until that seventh trumpet blows and then and only then the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Look at verse 7 of chapter 12 of Revelation. This is for next time, but just to show you, there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. There's war going on now. I haven't got time to go in it, but even in the Old Testament, Michael was held back from answering prayer because of satanic activity. I don't know how long this war is and how long it's been going. I particularly think it's probably still going now. There's a war, there's battles. Maybe there's battles and this is the last one. I don't know. I'll find, we'll find out next time. But to me, this is happening this very day. These, this war is happening now in places that we can't see. And until next time we look at that verse and, and others, please understand that right at this moment, Satan continues his opposition to Israel and he continues his opposition to us as Christians. But there is victory in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died. He rose again. He now sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for each one of us. And we have his word, which is just as important to know. The scripture has the method of this victory. How do you have victory over Satan? Well, Christ has won it. Hasn't been given to him yet. But what do we do? Well, there are many scriptures, but one that I'm going to read to is Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Just so you understand that this battle that we wage is not against flesh and blood. It's not against men and women. Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. I love that straight away. Don't be strong in your strength. We don't actually have any strength compared to Satan and his angels. But we have strength in the Lord and the strength of his might. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God 
so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. Peter then, uh, Paul then goes on to share what those, uh, which I'm not going to go into, what the full armour of God is, which you should have on. You don't take it on and off all the time. Let me tell you, the armour is on. You should have that armour on there now to stand against the wiles of the devil. James says he's roaring around like a lion, seeming, seeing whom he can devour. And James says, the risk, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then we have Paul telling us how to resist the devil. But in Christ there is victory. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And all I can say along with Paul is, but thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Christ has the victory, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the joy of reading prophecy in the knowledge that we have just uh, remembered, Lord, that, that we have a battle. But we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we go and go through this land as pilgrims, as we pass through waiting for that time when we will be with you in our, in our home, Father, we look to you, to your strength and to your mightiness, not our own. And we ask, Father, that you will help us and guide us and direct us through this world that is still officially led by Satan and his uh, cohorts. We ask, Father, that as I am often asked to ask myself or pray that, Father, you will come quickly. We say Maranatha. Amen.